Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guest for today is Bryce Ruddock, a permaculture practitioner and co-author, along with Wayne Wiseman and Daniel Halsey, of Integrated Forest Gardening. After speaking with Bryce and reading the book, I find him to be a bit of a guru on creating functional plant guilds, though I don't know how he'd feel about that title. We spend our time today talking about that topic, as well as how to discover ecological niches and system mimics so that we can adapt our designs to ever-changing conditions, whether they arise from climate change, disease, or simply because a chipmunk or raccoon doesn't like a particular plant. Before we begin, some announcements and updates. This show is listener-supported, and over 90% of the resources used to keep this show going comes from you, the listener. That includes all the normal basic operating costs you might expect, like equipment and electricity, but also helps with postage for things like the Traveling Permaculture Library Project. This show needs your help to continue growing and expanding, and as I was reminded recently when listening to a local radio network, they spend anywhere from 5 to 40 hours on a single 5-minute piece, whereas here you get normally about an hour of interview material a week. Find out how to make a one-time or ongoing monthly contribution at www.thepermaculturepodcast.com support. A copy of Bryce's book is being included in the library project. If you haven't participated already but would like to be a part of that, go to thepermaculturepodcast.com library for more information. On a more personal note, I just wrapped up my last semester of classes for graduate school, and this spring I will intern for a local nonprofit as a grant writer and educator. In May 2015, I'll be done that program and returning to the podcast with more energy and focus on increasing the number of interviews and long-format episodes that come out each week. I'm also revamping and relaunching the PDC program to offer more direct interaction and mentoring and to make the course more affordable. Email me, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, if you would like more information about that opportunity. And as my focus as a teacher continues to be on adult education, I want to thank Jen Mendez at permikids.com for her work and support of this podcast. Her interest is in teaching permaculture to children. And two ways she does that are through her education design course and edge alliances to help parents and other educators understand how to integrate the ideas of permaculture into their regular teaching practices. The education design course is a way that you can learn to map a learning landscape to reinvent and redesign what it means to learn, educate, and be educated with children. The next EDC begins on January 9th, 2015. She also has two Edge Alliances coming up. The next is on Saturday, January 10th from 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time when Kelly Hogan of the Institute of Permaculture Education for Children, IPEC, returns to share how to integrate traditional permaculture learning into the lives of young children and adolescents. After that, on Sunday, January 25th from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Jen focuses on New Year's resolutions, specifically the goals and actions we're taking to better care for ourselves, our families, our communities, and the Earth. Find out more about the Edge Alliances and Education Design course at permikids.com. You'll also find a link in the show notes. Now then, on to Bryce Ruddock. I'll join you afterwards with some more information from this interview. Then, Bryce, if you could give us a bit of your biography and background and how you came to do what you're doing, and then we'll continue the conversation to discuss integrated forest gardening. Well, I'm originally from uh, south-central Michigan, a small city named Marshall. 
at the junction of the two interstates in the southern part of the state, uh, I-69 and I-94. And uh, my uh, parents moved to the Milwaukee area back when I was just a few years old. So my entire life experience has mostly uh, been around southeastern Wisconsin, specifically areas like the Kettle Moraine and uh, the all eastern woodland forest biomes. I first heard of permaculture back in 1980. I was reading a interview, an interview in the Mother Earth News, one of those plowboy interviews with a guy named uh, Bill Mollison. And he's talking about how we need to go and uh, mimic patterns found in nature in the way that we set up our perennial plantings and that, and that perennial plantings was the way to go and that you need to incorporate all the gardening stuff and even your lifestyle to go in ways that rhyme, that mimic with nature. And I thought, hey, this is, this is kind of cool. I, I think I, I think I can think of myself as being one of these uh, permaculturists. And I thought, yeah, you know, yeah, that sounds good. So I started doing a lot more reading, uh, but there was very little permaculture literature around at the time, and I didn't have access to Permaculture One or any of that, so I just based it all on this interview and the little smatterings that would come through from uh, like Mother Earth News or, or uh, Countryside and Small Stock Journal and stuff like that, until years later, a friend of mine was taking a course on permaculture, and he says, Bryce, he says, you've got to take this course. This is incredible. So that next year, they were offering a course again. This was at Midwest Permaculture in uh, out of uh, Illinois, and they were going to offer it at uh, the uh, Renew the Earth Institute in Custer, Wisconsin, which, uh, you know, I knew where that was because I'd been there a couple of times. And my wife said, you know, she said, you've got to do this because otherwise you're not going to have a clue if you're doing things the right way or not. And she says, go ahead. You can do this. I know it's going to cost some money. She says, you know, it, it's okay with me. So I took the course, and I was pretty much close to what – uh, all the ideals were on this, following the proper procedures and stuff. And I'd uh, done a whole lot of studying on like ethnobotany and had huge uh, forest garden in the yard and stuff like this. And it was like, okay, well, yeah, it's it's good. But I just you know a slight perspective shift, and then I was like spot on with it. So it was kind of very interesting that I had arrived at the a nearly identical place uh, independently, largely independently of any formal training which was good. It kind of gave me a leg up as, as when it came to like researching things for courses and stuff like that. So what I had been doing all those years for a living was uh, about six years in civil service in the 1970s, and then after that working in a factory making paint. I used to tell people that I was in molecular construction because we would build paint molecules. So it kind of sounded cool that way, but it was... Uh, dangerous work and that you're working with a lot of toxic chemicals. So then I was fortunate enough to be able to retire from that uh, job three years ago and devote the remainder of my time to uh, working with uh, permaculture and per specifically permaculture education for people. And I'd taken a course in 2010 to become a permaculture teacher. Meanwhile, starting in like 2009, Bill Wilson at Midwest Permaculture had uh, seen something hopeful in me that he thought was, you know, he nurtured this idea in me that I could be a teacher of permaculture. So I developed some curriculum for them. It's called the Plant Guilt E-Manual, and it's available on Midwest Permaculture site for free. And uh, I did some trainings uh, for them, especially their Plant Guilds training. 
via Skype calls and such. And, uh, you know, it worked good. It gave me a lot more confidence in uh, dealing with people one-on-one and in groups uh, as far as doing presentations. And, and so that's pretty much where I came now, uh, where I'm at today. I do some uh, independent teaching for a group called Ozperm, Ozaki Permaculture. And uh, this is the second training that they've done, and they have done wonderful things in uh, the Ozaki and Washington County areas north of the Milwaukee area where they are setting up a permaculture collective to do projects up here, uh, apple rootstock and the cyanwood grafting of uh, varieties that they found growing on an old horse farm, all seedlings, and so they can like name these varieties and spread these varieties around the, the ones that they felt were useful that they evaluated last fall. So they have all these interesting projects that they're doing. And I'm really happy to be working with these people, and they're just doing wonderful stuff. And that's where I'm at today. You've really taken quite a jump from those early days of just a little bit of information here and a little bit there to build and grow experientially to the place where you are now. Uh, Yes and no. Uh, I mean, a lot of this, I was really good at observing it's up in nature. When I was a kid, when I was in Boy Scouts, I was the one that was always going out in the woods and looking at the plants. And when I was a little kid, my grandma used to show us how to take care of things in the vegetable garden. She'd go out there with a the salt shaker in the morning, sprinkle salt on the cabbages because she said that cabbages developed over near the seacoast around Italy. Originally, that's where they historically uh, began and that the salt will drive away or kill the cabbage worms. So it was like all these little observational things and uh, little bits of information that you get from your elders. And if you listen and you remember these things, they all become part of who you are in later years, and you carry that with you, and it becomes seeds that grow. From that place, how did you get involved in writing this book with Wayne and Daniel? Well, I think it was about four years ago. We were sitting under a tree over uh, at the Midwest Renewable Energy Association Fair, just, you know, visiting, passing the time of day, and Wayne says, uh, i got to ask you a question. He says, what do you think about us writing a book together about plant kills? I said, what? Uh, sounds, uh, actually, that sounds kind of cool. Yeah, I, I could do that. So uh, we started um, a couple of years back, just tentatively tossing some writings back and forth at each other and see you know, how they look. And then we brought Dan in because Dan... He's done a lot of work with uh, his natural uh, capital plant guild systems uh, that, that he had collaborated with somebody else on and uh, his database, and he's done a lot of design work, too. So he's a, he's a great photographer. He does great uh, graphics and stuff, and he's got a good scientific background on polycultures, too. So he was an invaluable asset to working on this, and he just complimented the two of us so much so that, you know, it was just like the perfect storm as far as you know, being able to write a book. You got all these elements, the three authors coming together and working on this. And then about, uh, let's see, October of uh, 2012, we got together over at Dan's place in Prior Lake, Minnesota, and sat down and began writing a book. And then uh, after that, we just, you know, went back and forth with it uh, through uh, Dropbox files and uh, compared notes, uh, rewrote chapters, um, stuff like that. A lot of editing. Editing is... (laughs) It's like you write the same thing over five times, it feels like sometimes. There's an author whose work I follow, and he says that the magic occurs in the editing. The passion is the rough draft. A lot of the discussions that I'm involved in behind the scenes as people are asking questions about what permaculture is and what it looks like, that there's this 
kind of a divide between doing nature mimicry, and it can look messy and get folks in trouble with their weed ordinances or their neighbors, or other folks who are doing like really heavy design that are, you know, look more like an English tea garden that is still permaculture, but not what people might expect. And one of the things that I like in your book is looking through the structure of a plant guild is that you talk about making sure that it's visually pleasing. And it's a consideration that I like having as part of the conversation, that it is something that we can show off and be just as likely to invite a garden club over to see it as we are our permaculture friends. Yeah, I've got a friend named Tom who comes over and he looks at the in her yard and he goes, some people would call this messy. <laughs> and it's like, oh, well, you know, yeah, there's a little bit too much of this species, a little bit too much of that species. But then I said, what we do is we, we go through a couple times a year and we, and we thin things out so that uh, some of the other ones can uh, bounce back a little bit. Uh, in uh, the guilds that, uh, that I've got in the book, there's actually, it, it shows like 10 or 11 plants in those guilds. Uh, no, there's a lot more. I, I have over over 350 species on one-sixth of an acre. And uh, the book just, for the Ruddock Guilds, a portion of that, it's only showcasing perhaps a few dozen of those. You say one-sixth of an acre? One-sixth of an acre, yes. And the house is located in one corner, the garage in the completely opposite corner diagonally, and all the rest of its garden, except for some sidewalks and a small patio. Well, not too small. It's probably about uh, 12 by 15. Are you in an urban or a suburban area? I'm in an urban area, but uh, we're kind of like uh, lucky in that the way that the uh, main highway through town is structured is that it goes on a slight angle so that uh, if you're on the one side of the street of the side streets, that you end up with a bigger yard than if you're on the other side. So the, across from us, they have a yard that's probably about a third of our size, and we have one that's three times their size. So it uh, works out really good. So it's almost like having two lots and we're at the junction of two alleys too. So that, that helps also in that you get a whole lot more edge and you don't have to like contend with uh, neighbors saying, well, you're blocking the view from my window or something like that. So it was one of the deciding factors in, in purchasing the property back in 1984. You're already thinking about your long-term permaculture goals? Oh gosh, yeah. I was thinking about those in the 1970s already. I just didn't call it permaculture. We knew what we wanted to do. We just uh, didn't have the property to do it on. And you can't implement uh, too many things on an urban rental unit lot. One of the interests as humanity becomes more and more urban is in urban permaculture. And I have some friends who are also doing work in suburban permaculture, especially with a lot of the suburban sprawl that continues to occur here in the U.S., what have been some of the challenges and benefits of working in that environment on your sixth of an acre? Well, on our sixth of an acre, it's like getting to know your next door neighbors and uh, to work with them is always good. With the one neighbor on the west, the immediate neighbor there, that we actually share a property line with it rather than an alley, uh, they have a huge pear tree that's uh, been an annual bearer every year except for this year. I think this year was the uh, blossoms probably, I mean, it was a very bad winter. So the probably little blossoms and blossom buds that froze off or something. But then they've also got a black walnut tree. Well, they're willing to share those with us because they don't use those anymore. The uh, woman that lives there, she's like 87 years old. And it's like she's not going to go out and pick up black walnuts. So I get all the black walnuts I want for free. I just got to go pick them up. Not, not that I'd even have to go over there to pick them up because by us, there's black walnut trees 
everywhere as you go through the parkway because we're living near a parkway and at the end of the block is a large open field that local tradition calls the Indian field because uh, legend has it that there was a Potawatomi Indian village there at one time. Well, there is a 150 foot across clump of trees and shrubs down there that contains cottonwood trees, black walnut trees, mulberry trees, riverbank grape, sumac, and blackberries, as well as a whole lot of other ground forb level useful plants, violets and everything else that's in there that uh, I didn't even realize was there until last year when I had to go out and look for pictures for the book. And I'm walking around that I'm going like, hey, that's a walnut. I've been living there for 30 years. I didn't know it was there. But there's all these things in our urban neighborhoods that we can find that we can build up this resilience that we can work with our neighbors to go and catalog where things are, that we can take down fences. In fact, over in the Bayview neighborhood of uh, the city of Milwaukee, which is about uh, two towns north, we had uh, a little discussion group going with uh, some of the residents, residents there, forming what we, the core of what was called a resilience group. And the resilience groups basically be like a neighborhood association. They take down their fences. They share those spaces that they've got. And uh, if somebody wants to have more trees, they share, you know, their apple trees, peach trees, or nut trees, whatever they'd have there. If somebody doesn't want to have that kind of stuff, they've got children, they want to have a play space. And that becomes the, a common play space for children. Uh, if someone's got gardening area, they share that with others so that you have all of this shared access, almost a commons area, along an entire one-block area in people's backyards. And we were working theoretically towards this concept as an idea that can be encouraged as opposed to just gardening on empty lots. You wind up building the neighborhood as you tear down those fences and take down the walls that divide. Yeah, you tear down the fences, and at the same time, you bring in the elderly into the process because they have memories that they can share of how things were, how people got by, how people cooperated together, what you know, skill sets that they can share that are in danger of being lost otherwise. So that was one of the other things, the social aspect of these resilience groups. And this is all part of like transition, the, the transition movement. Uh, it has a lot of similarities to that. And the initiative had grown out of a group of local tra- uh, transition Milwaukee members. And it's all about building community and then at the same time incorporating permaculture-inspired designs into the uh, local food shed. But even though I'm doing all of this in a uh, suburban and urban setup, we've also got two community garden plots over two miles west of us. Milwaukee County operates this uh, gardening system where you can rent the same garden every year and you can put perennials in there. So we are in the, in the process of setting up mixed annual and perennial polyculture guilds on some uh, sites that we've been using now for about four years. We've got some rhubarb in there, some grapes, some currants, and some asparagus, as well as potatoes, corn, beans, squash, tomatoes, peppers, and uh, onions. What's the reaction from other members of the community garden? Oh, there's people in there that have been doing this for 20 years. And I tell folks in Transition Milwaukee about this. I say, you know, you guys are always talking about getting gardens going and stuff. There's this wonderful system that's been going for years. In fact, back in the 1970s, we used to rent some of these county gardens then, but they were, they were just annual ones at that point in time where you couldn't uh, put any perennial plants in. And I tell them about ni- this 900-square-foot garden that you can rent for $38 a year. And they go, why would I want to plant that much? And that's so much like work. It's like, yeah, of course it is. Trying to go and learn how to grow food, it gives you that level of resiliency and adaptability that 
uh, that you need. These are things that we always strived. Those were things that were important to my parents and to my grandparents, and that I instilled those values in my children and in my grandchildren. And I just, I'm just amazed when I, when I don't see that a lot of city people just think, well, I'd rather go down to Whole Foods and, uh, and pick up my lettuce there. One of my running themes is that my wife and I are kind of not the world's greatest gardeners, but our CSA provides a lot of opportunity for pick your own at the end of the various seasons. And just one of those mornings standing out there picking quart after quart of blueberries and having that feeling that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is part of that right livelihood to be harvesting food that will then be put away for my family for later in the year. We have a lot of uh, friends who have CSAs and uh, we've never joined a CSA because it's like my wife says, when we go to the farmer's market and we look around at what's available, other than eggs or meat, (laughs) we got it all already. And uh, in our town, we're not allowed to, uh, to raise chickens, and we're not allowed to have bees. And yet in the city of Milwaukee, they can do that. But uh, I live in a city of South Milwaukee, which is two cities south of there. And the uh, health department and the uh, Board of Aldermen have been quite seen their way towards uh, bringing back uh, that level of resilience. They feel that it would make the town too rural. That's an odd distinction. Yeah, I know. It's like when, when you go and you listen to the arguments at the uh, common council meetings and people say, if I wanted to live like, if I wanted to live next to a place where they live pig, where they raise pigs, I'd be out in the country. No one's talking about raising pigs. <laughs> they were talking about having chickens. <laughs> These uh, conversations go on in many communities. I know that in Carbondale, Illinois, which uh, about uh, two years ago, I think, uh, uh, legalized raising chickens, they were having the same arguments uh, with uh, the same sort of statements being made. And it was only after just repeated, repeated, repeated uh, pressure from residents uh, that they came up with a trial program of, of allowing chickens, where now the city of Madison has had chickens for years, Madison, Wisconsin. And you know, that's a large city. And Milwaukee's had chickens now for two, maybe three years. And that's a you know, very large city. And you know, some of the other towns, it's like, no way, no chickens, nope, nope. You want to have those? Go get a farm. Though thankfully there is at least movement in a direction where things like chickens and bees are becoming more and more prevalent. Okay, oftentimes in permaculture, we go and uh, substitute. Well, that's all part of finding substitutions. Uh, And in our yard, we can't have chickens, so we have morning doves. They live there anyways. It's a wild creature. They function as chickens. They're kind of tame. And uh, we have to say, come on, kids, get out of the way when we're walking through the garden because... uh, they're like right there in front of our feet. And uh, instead of pigs, we have chipmunks. They, they eat like pigs, even though they're small. And for the pollinators, we have the native bees. So it's all just part of substituting what you can have for what you can't have, working with the natural systems. And as your book is about polycultures and plant guilds, I would imagine then that you're taking those kinds of considerations in mind whenever you're building your system so that you can help to encourage those things that you can't necessarily include directly? Exactly. As a matter of fact, a great example is over here at the uh, design that we're doing here at, at a bed and breakfast in Newburgh, Wisconsin. Uh, we discovered that uh, well, we, we knew that the ash trees are dying from infestations of uh, emerald ash borer. This is actually like the epicenter of that infestation in the state of Wisconsin, in the uh, Newburgh area. 
in uh, Washington County, about 30 miles north of Milwaukee. And we have discovered that uh, the Kentucky coffee tree, which is also native to this area, and which is, while not exactly endangered, on the rare side, is a great substitute that grows in the same kinds of soils, has a valuable wood, marginally useful uh, otherwise, but not at all as a wildlife food, but it's a good wood and it's fast growing and it's actually a desirable tree species. And a friend, one of the students from last year, who uh, lives on a farm over near Lake Michigan has germinated, oh gee, probably about 50 of these trees. And so we're, we're looking at about a half a dozen trees out here outside the the window right now that uh, we've got spots that we figured out for. It's going to go over near a, a little library area. Uh, those are uh, boxes set up that uh, people put books into for people to just either put one in and take one out and uh, to replace it or to sit down and read outdoors. And we plant trees out there to shade this. And the trees will be replacing the uh, green ash trees that have died here. So when I look around outside, I can you can't go like about 50 feet without seeing a dead tree that's an ash tree. So this can help to replace that. It can be one of many species that can be used to re replace it that grows in the same habitat, and yet is it has usefulness as a lumber species. So even though it may not fill all of the niches that the ash tree might, you're making an ecological substitution as part of this process to replace those trees that are damaged and dying. In fact, the ash trees themselves had done the same thing after a settlement with a lot of the clearing that went on in the richer bottomland areas. The ash trees moved in. I have a friend who lives in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. His entire backyard is nothing but uh, ash trees. And uh, he just kind of curses the darn things because uh, he's not real fond of the trees, but it's, it's all that's growing back there. And it's an opportunistic and quick-growing species. It has a lot of great usefulness, and when the trees die, they actually uh, you've got some great firewood uh, because whether ash is green wood or whether it's dried wood, it burns nice and clean and without smoke, without a whole lot of smoke, compared to things like uh, pine, birch, and a lot of other species. It's a great, it's a great fuel wood. So now we have the problem is the solution, like they say in permaculture. There's all these dead ash trees. Well, now there's all this firewood at a time when. Energy supplies are getting iffy and stuff. People are going back to wood burners, and suddenly we have an excess of dead ash trees. Wow, what an opportunity. Timing is everything, right? And there's a perfect niche to fill in the meantime for someone if they would like to go out and start a firewood company. Yeah, and at the same time, the slash from that can uh, be the base for Hugelkulter beds. We were just talking about that uh, with some friends last night. And uh, then there's the opportunity to replace that with a mixture of species rather than just another substitute for the ash. You go with Kentucky coffee tree, mulberry, uh, any one of a dozen other species that can fit into those same niches so that you get a diversity and that lessens the chance then for another infestation of, of an insect by you're going and spreading things out and uh, putting other species in between and you're reducing the vector of transmission for any new disease or insect. From a more practical side, how do you go about researching and deciding what to use in your guilds? Like this example of the ash tree, how did you come about to understand the value of something like the Kentucky coffee tree? Well, one of the integral things that I use for design of anything in Wisconsin is a book uh, by John Curtis called Vegetation of Wisconsin. It came out in the 1950s, and this is like the definitive guide to Wisconsin uh, forest and uh, 
grassland ecosystems. This thing is like just this awesome book. And I've read this thing through and through at least twice. And then I uh, get background stuff out of Trees of North America, A Field Guide in Natural History, and any one of a number of other books, especially the John Eastman books, Field and Forest, Swamp and Bog, and well, Field and Roadside, Forest and Thicket, and Swamp and Bog. These ones actually deal with the ecological relationships between the animals, insects, and the plants. So that helps a lot in setting up any sort of a structural guild concept where you can uh, understand a subtle interaction between species. And then reading these books provides you kind of that background of understanding of the different relationships so that then as you go to research, you're already thinking about these different related pieces. Exactly. And that just scratches the surface because then when you start researching online, you do a Google search, a Google search on something, you go about 20 pages in on a Google search and you're finding all kinds of PDFs of different uh, entomological studies and stuff like this and relationship to this and that. And once you learn how to negotiate your way through these papers and understand what it is that they're saying, which isn't too hard, it gets to be, it's all the information is there and all we have to do is dig a little bit and watch it bubble to the surface and then to go and apply it on a site. Going back to your biography, do you have a formal background in this kind of work before going off to the factory? Uh, not really. I, I did go to college, but uh, just two and a half years. And I think it was the last year of it I had switched over to botany. So there was a knowledge of basic plant structure. Otherwise, it was primarily political science and history. But just a natural tendency to always want to know these things, to always be observing them, to like being out in the woods. Yeah, all areas, not just oak savanna, prairies, uh, uh, eastern woodland forests, but boreal forests in northern Michigan. I love those. And uh, the northern hardwoods forest here in Wisconsin is different biomes. It's just great. It's all over. Wisconsin's such a great and diverse state, all the way up to like Lake Superior and in northern Michigan also. It's a, so many things to, to learn and know and places to see. And then you, you start to see these relationships between things and how the climate and the elements in it, the, the forces that travel back and forth across things, you, you close your eyes and you can just feel the life moving around. And I don't mean the mosquito crawling on you either. You get that though, too. <laughs> or, 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 give me the wood tick. <laughs> uh, yeah, we uh, mosquitoes and ticks. I don't even want to think about those, right? <laughs> well, they're not too bad. <laughs> We've had a fairly heavy tick year this year. I think we picked off uh, six ticks in like the first week of the season, and usually that's our, our annual total. For me, that's, that would be a big year. I mean, I went for years without any ticks at all. And then a couple of years ago, I had like three or four in a year. It was like, whoa, what's going on here? All of a sudden, like, they want my blood? And then last year, nothing. With your reference to the different ecological niches in the books that you use to find information on that, have you? does Wisconsin have a natural heritage program? Uh, I'm not sure. What's a natural heritage program? I mean, how would you define that uh? It's a formal, here at least in Pennsylvania, it's a formal program where they document the different native floras and fauna. And Oh, yes, yes, we have a lot of that. I mean, the, the uh, State Historical Society, the DNR, there's just, you go online and you just type in data searches for these things and you can find entire lists of everything from in, uh, so-called invasive plants to uh, native species everything. And it's all there along with its ecological background of it. So there's these vast databases that uh, we make available to the students to use in their research when they're 
working on a design, and we encourage them to go and use these things year-round. Plus, some of the adjacent states' databases, wetland plants of uh, Illinois uh, and stuff are very useful also. And uh, there's heritage sites here in Wisconsin, uh, but they call them uh, scientific study areas that the DNR has. There's a number of these around, around the state, some even in the Milwaukee County area uh, that showcase specific types of, uh, of environments like a calcareous fen along a Lake Michigan bluff where you get seepage streams coming out of the bluff and specific species growing into that don't grow anywhere else in the area but maybe a few spots in the state and always sharing characteristics of this high calcium cold water spring type biome. I love these conversations. It's like writing my own education by speaking with people such as yourself. And then even better, I get to share it with thousands and thousands of people. That's the good part. Because then the word gets out there and they say, hey, maybe I got this in my neighborhood, you know? And then they start looking around and they go like, hey, that little spot down at the end of the block? I never knew that about that. Then all of a sudden it's like they're looking at things new. All these things are out there. And if we just like look at things with a fresh mind's eye, we, we can see things, whether we're in the city, whether we're in the uh, boondocks, whether you're in the middle of a forest and you walk by that same spot all the time. There's different ways of looking at things. There's different, it's not a different reality. It's just a deeper reality. I feel like I'm doing a pep talk here. <laughs> I had a conversation with a friend of mine last night who's an author, and she's working on a multi-book series where each book takes place in a different chronological period of the story. It starts at the end and then works its way to the beginning. But all of the narrators are, for each book, is a different character, and they come from a first-person, limited perspective. And it was in reading through these that there's a conversation that occurs on the internal dialogue of the characters, which is telling one story versus the external dialogue between themselves and others. What you just said reminded me of that and how the world that we live in is, that, is the world that is, but it's how do we interact with it and how do we understand it that determines what we know and what we're able to do. Yeah, not to go too far off page, but that's just... That's directly on page, actually, because we, we're limited in our, in our perceptive abilities. And every once in a while, and I was mentioning this to my students yesterday, every once in a while you get this flash of inspiration, this, I can see it, I, I, can, I can see it, I can almost define this reality in words, and you reach out for it, and then it, it slips away again. It's out of your grasp. It's like there's a deeper meaning, and you're reaching towards it. Like, you look at a tree, it's something. It's, it's like it's telling you a message, and you can't quite hear the words. And you reach for that. You try to grasp that idea and put it into a language that a human might understand, and bang, it's gone. It slipped away again. And this happens repeatedly. And I think that's part of our problem is that we can't we don't have the words for some concepts. We don't have those words yet, but we're working on it. We know that the idea is there. We, we know there's something there, a deeper, a deeper meaning, a, not a hidden meaning. It, it's right there in the open. It's just that we can't see it quite right. In other cultures, they have words for these things. In some of the Native American cultures, some of the African cultures, some of the uh, indigenous Asian cultures, as you get up into uh, Siberia, and of course the uh, Australian Aborigines, they have words that we don't have that mean things that we can, can't begin to understand. Uh, you, you translate it, and it looks silly to us. But to them, it has deeper meaning, like the, the many Inuit words for snow. They have, I don't know, what is it, 63 words or something for snow, and we have snow, sleet, ice, hail. That's it. 
I think about my childhood growing up that there were originally only three types of matter. Gases, solids, and liquids, and then later, I, what was it, plasmas were added. And now I hear more and more research about so many different forms. And then within the scientific literature, the different types of ice that there are, depending on pressure and temperature and the way that it forms. Yeah, especially the temperature thing. You start using that Rankin scale and you get down to like those really low temperatures and it's like, whoa, <laughs> you mean there's something more icy than ice? I love the limitations of being human. And all the things that I get to learn and how every day can be this wonderful experience of experiencing the world in a new way. And, you know, being a parent and experiencing the world through the eyes of my children, but then approaching the world with a sense of wonder and being able to see the world through the eyes of my own inner child and the way that that changes that observation and interaction. We've gone through so many things and only barely touched on the content of the book. Yeah, I just opened up the book and put it in front of myself right now, too. One of the things I really liked that I found for this book was this concept that came out of uh, Iowa, the Comprehensive Integrated Agroforestry. This is like taking plant guilds, putting them into a system similar to Mark Shepard's system, and they're growing a canopy single species on one-tenth of an acre, on a one-tenth of an acre block. And, but beneath that, they're growing all these other species that might be useful, things like comfrey, things like golden seal, things like ginseng, things like currants. But then on the adjacent blocks, they're not growing the same species. So they don't have any contiguous same species blocks. What they have is a different block there. And so a couple blocks later, that first species of tree then repeats again. So that there's very little vector for uh, uh, disease transmission, insect transmission, any predator type thing at all setting up different relationships and all, and they found that these one-tenth of an acre blocks is the optimum size that they found for enhancing production of the, uh, of the crop, while at the same time uh, minimizing damage from uh, predators. And, of course, they've got all these multiple layers in the forest, and then they're all separated by alleys. So they do alley cropping, they do agroforestry, they could, if, if they wanted to, even uh, run some stock through the uh, silvopasture, the areas between, and even silvopasture the, uh, some of these blocks if, if they were raising animals, which they're not, they're not doing it at this site, which is Red Fern Farm in Iowa. But uh, it's been going for about 10 years now, I guess, with uh, some fairly decent results. I see that they do farm tours all the time, and it's just a fascinating concept applying some of these same principles, agroforestry principles that uh, have a great similarity to uh, permaculture and doing this in a multi-storied type setting, a lot of diversity. It's just, I was struck by that as it being just fantastic. And so this would be permaculture, almost permaculture, or permaculture concepts on an agricultural scale, on a farm scale, farm forest scale. So the whole thing with the forest gardens is they don't have to be these little gills. We have a dwarf apple tree with a couple flowers, maybe a cabbage plant or a cucumber, a couple of peas vining around, and a comfrey plant on it. They can be that small. If all you have like a little corner in your yard, you can, you can come up with a polyculture that's like that. But you can take these things all the way up to whatever scale you want. You could do this with an entire country. And I, I would love to see the state of Illinois turn from a cornfield to mixed hazels, chestnuts, uh, walnuts, uh, understory currants, raspberries, 
just whatever. It would be fantastic to just go down there and just see all this food and then people picking the food. Of course, it's a it's oversimplistic to go and assume that they could ever get to that point and that people would be willing to go out there and harvest that many chestnuts. But I suppose if they had to, they would. It's not like you can go out there and combine it, right? <laughs> and that's where I think there's a great niche to be filled by all of the urban and suburban spaces that can provide a wide variety of models from you know, a fraction of an acre up to there are quite a few hobby farm size areas around here that are, you know, 15, 20 acres. Are you familiar with the uh, study that was done of the Dacha system in post-Soviet uh, Russia? I can't say that I am off the top of my head. Well, that, that's what saved the Russian people from starving, was that they had these backyard, gar- backyard gardens. And so the people went out there and they grew potatoes and cabbages and carrots and beets and whatever else that they, you know, they ate in these backyard gardens. And they went to markets and they would sell this or, or barter it. And there was this entire food economy that did not rely on a distribution network of uh, the size that we have here, where it is grown 500 to uh, 2,000 miles away, and it gets trucked there to a warehouse, and from there to the grocery store, then you drive to the grocery store, and you buy your bag of potatoes. No, you go out there, and you dig them up out of your yard. And they knew they had to do this if they wanted to live. They grew their own starch sources. And that's one of the problems with a lot of these. Uh, little permaculture gardens that show fruit and maybe one little nut tree, usually a hazel, and uh, some vegetables and some herbs and stuff like that. It's like, where's the starch source? Where's the proteins? And so we need to, like, uh, bring in annuals into our polycultures also for starch sources uh, because it's going to take a while to get those chestnut trees big enough. So you have to, like, have a place where you can grow potatoes. You have to be willing to follow the lead of the American Indians who lived on this continent the Native Americans lived in this continent for thousands of years and grew corn, beans, and squash as their primary source of food and then supplemented that with game, wild herbs, and other useful plants. And that's a guild system, the Corn, Bean, Squash, Three Sisters Guild, and you can add other items into that same guild, amaranth, sunflowers, crimson clover as a ground cover, Cleum cerulata, which they grow out in the southwest. They use the seeds of that. And it's another ground cover that can grow into uh, a cornfield. So, and we're not talking rows, we're talking like hill cropping with little areas in between where you plant your squash and the squash didn't cover the ground. The beans grow up the corn and all these different types of beans, all the, all the diversity that was there in varieties and corn for different uses in different climates. And it's, it's not, not the stuff that we, I mean, I look out the, out the window and down the block here and I can see fields of GMO soybeans, Roundup Ready and uh, uh, GMO corn with the uh, built-in uh, BT gene and uh, Bacillus syringiensis gene in there that kills the, uh, the uh, butterfly, uh, the corn earworm, and probably hurts a lot of other stuff too. So all of that's there, but those are like, like monocrops, almost genetically identical, set up for failure eventually, whereas this diversity, this tradition of diversity that we've got even for annual crops that can be integrated into a field system where you've got black walnuts or Kentucky coffee tree, which is another nitrogen fixer, by the way, and um, pecans, hickories. It's like, wow, we can do these things, but we don't. And I've been doing Three Sisters Guild since the uh, early 1970s. It's like, to me, that's a second nature. Corn, beans, squash, shit, what's so hard? <laughs> Thank you for taking us on this path, Bryce, and answering my questions and then leading us through 
this final conversation about what we can do and how we can guild things together. Before we do bring the interview to a close, is there anything else that you would like to add to the conversation for the listeners? Well, in uh, going over uh, my notes from my class, there's one quote that I like to to give the students every year. This is from uh, Brad Lancaster's book, Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond, and it's a quotation that he uses from a Zimbabwean farmer who had restored habitat through swales and tree planting and stuff like this. And uh, the, the farmer's name is Zephaniah Firi Basiko. And uh, his words are, it's a slow process, but that's life. Slowly implement these projects. And as you begin to rhyme with nature, soon other lives will start to rhyme with yours. Those are really true words. And that, that should be our goal, rhyming with nature. Well, thank you for sharing those words with us, your story and all of this useful information for creating a better world with permaculture, ecological design, and doing good integrated guild development. And thank you for having me on the show. It was wonderful. It was a joy. And that was Bryce Ruddock. You'll find a link to Bryce's book at Chelsea Green, as well as to the Midwest Permaculture Plant Guild's ebook and other resources in the show notes at www.thepermaculturepodcast.com slash 2014 slash Bryce. In this interview, I mentioned natural heritage programs. What I was referring to is a specific program that collects and provides information about important natural resources for a given region. These are in cooperation with the NatureServe network, which covers Canada, the United States, and Mexico. The Pennsylvania Heritage Site was a go-to reference I used repeatedly in my resource management program and is a useful resource for permaculture practitioners. The state-specific site for me includes material on local plant communities, inventories at the county level of various plants and animals, species lists for the state, as well as ongoing projects and publications. It's worth looking for this kind of program in your area, as the wealth of information is great for your ongoing research when creating a design. A link to the PA site and NatureServe are in the show notes. That ongoing research and education is important because we can't take a permaculture design course and think that is enough. Something one of my teachers imparted on me was that the PDC is just a beginning. It's our first step. From there, we need to develop a niche based on our interests and passions, something David Holmgren recommended, to really know what it is we're doing, to have relevant experience, and to be the experts in our areas of interest. In turn, we can find people of like mind and take permaculture further. To be able to show examples that work anywhere in the world, whether in the landscape or in a community, and at the same time have the flexibility in our thoughts and a depth of understanding that we can answer questions truthfully. Be willing to say, I don't know, or I haven't done that before, and still feel comfortable in finding a real functional solution. Something else Bryce mentioned was building resilience groups. Resilience groups, as presented at resilience.org, are a way to build connections that coincide nicely with the transition movement. Resilience groups are a broad umbrella under which we can connect with others on various topics, including transition, farm-to-school initiatives, and the efforts of such groups as interfaith power and the like. If you're in a community where you're considering starting a transition group or other organization to create a more bountiful world, definitely look to see if there are any resilience efforts underway in your area. If along your path with permaculture there's any way I can help you, please get in touch with me. Call 717-827-6266 or email show at the permaculturepodcast.com. 
Together we can create a beautiful, bountiful world by taking care of Earth, ourselves, and each other.